Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would join us this morning again. That by the power of your Spirit, you would make your word to be a living word in our experience. That you would teach us what is right and what is true. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're looking briefly at verse 17. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 21, is a passage of Scripture that is the present truth, particularly for Adventists and Christians in this age of earth's history. I'd encourage you to look for information on that passage, to study that passage. We're looking at verse 17. The Bible says... Because you say, I am rich. That's as far as we're going to go in this particular study. We're studying about love, the very top of that ladder in 2 Peter 1. Laodicea says that she is rich. I say she, we say, in in some way as a class, we say that we are rich. And it's a good question to ask, what are the riches, the spiritual riches, that the Bible is speaking of in Revelation 3. When Jesus says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold, what are the spiritual riches of our time? Look with me at James chapter 2. We're looking at James chapter 2. We want to understand what are spiritual riches, what is it that Laodicea thinks that she has when she says, I am rich, that she certainly does not have much of when Jesus says that you are poor. James 2, and looking at verse 5. Hearken, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in, what does it say? The riches of Revelation 3, spiritual riches, are riches of faith. But listen carefully to the passage. Those who are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him. Who is it that inherits the kingdom in in James 2? There are two answers. It's those that are rich in faith, and it's those that love God. Either there are two classes that are going to inherit the kingdom, or else these two classes are the same. I'm sure it's the second one, that those who are rich in faith are the same as those that love God. Or in other words, that the spiritual riches of our day are love and faith combined. This is one of the most interesting studies that you could do. If you're note-takers, maybe I'll just give you, for those who are, I'm going to give you a little list of passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 8. Ephesians 3, verses 16 to 17. Maybe Ephesians 3, that's verses 16 to 17. Maybe together we'll look at one of them. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6. Galatians 5. And we're looking at verse 6. (coughs) 
For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. If you look at the verse, is it very clear to you that if there is a spiritual richness in faith, that it would only be faith that is combined with love? That when is it that faith works? Faith works by love. And if faith is not combined with love, then faith is not working. If faith is valuable, it must be that it is combined with love. And if there are a class of people who are rich in faith, it must be that they're rich in a faith that works by love. And so it was in James 2 that those who are rich in faith were heirs of the kingdom that God has promised to those that love him. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And we're looking at verse 12 and verse 13. Matthew 24 and verses 12 and 13. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. In Matthew 24, what is it that needs to endure unto the end? The answer is that it's love. Love must endure, and what is it that causes love to deteriorate? It's abounding iniquity. My observation inside the Bible and in what I see around me leads me to conclude that this happens in two different ways. There is a man who places himself in wicked company, and by association his spirituality begins to grow dim. His love grows cold because of the wickedness that he is friends with. That is one danger. There is another danger of the man who sees the wicked company and distances himself from that in his mind and his way of thinking, but begins to to cherish feelings and thoughts towards the wicked company that itself reduces his affection for them. So that while iniquity is abounding, the love of this man is growing cold. I want to summarize this thought again and then give you more of a study. An enduring love is a salvational issue in the last generation. He whose love endures unto the end is the same that will be saved. Laodicea thinks that she is rich in love and faith. It's because she doesn't even comprehend what love and faith are. That's why she thinks she has a great deal of them when she has very little. I appreciated what Pastor McIntosh shared. Did you catch what he said when he said that that most of us understand what kindness is, but when we get to love, we're a little fuzzy? Did you hear him say this? It's the truth. We confound sentimentalism with love. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is a passage that helps distinguish between sentimentalism and love. Matthew 5, and we're looking at verse 46.
if this audience was an audience of sincere atheists, and there are a great deal, a great number of those in this world, if you were an audience of sincere atheists, and many of you were parents and mothers with children, and I were to ask you, do, the mothers that were here, do you love your children? What would you say as an audience of atheists? Yes. Would you be sincere? Yes. And would it be true that many of you would be very kind to your children? You know, it's true that a love for friends and a love for parents and a love for children, while it is a very valuable commodity, never has distinguished between Christians and non-Christians. Those commodities are often found outside of the Christian fold. Matthew 5, verse 46, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Not even the publicans the, the same. Verse 47, If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Jesus is not putting down this type of love. He's not saying that there's something wrong with loving your children, your parents, and your brethren. But he is saying that that is not the love that distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. Verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. What is he speaking of? Look back at verse 45 that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his Son to rise on, what does it say? The evil and the good. He sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. I feel like just giving a thought related to this before we move on. I remember when I was in academy, someone suggesting that I shouldn't buy toothpaste from a certain company. Because that company honors some false religion. I think I learned later that that was a scheme by Amway to put down one of its competitors. But if it had been the truth, it still wouldn't have been true. I mean, if you make a man responsible for what the store he shops at does with the money, you are engaging a principle that makes our Father in Heaven responsible for all of the wickedness that goes on in this earth. If you make a man responsible for secondary causes, you have just accused the Father in Heaven of a very great crime. Does Jesus enable the wicked men of earth by giving them breath and food and rain? And who is responsible for decisions that they make? They are and not he. But back to our point, the love that distinguishes between Christians and non-Christians is a love for those who do not give it back in return. It's a love for those that we are not inclined to have affection for. It's a love for those that we're inclined to dislike. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 12.
If again we were a community of atheists and agnostics and someone got in front of us and told us a very sad story, would we cry? It's, some of us would. Sentimentalism does not distinguish between Christians and non-Christians. But it often deceives Christians into thinking that they have love. That is, because we are touched by the needs of starving children, and because it hurts us when we see a suffering cat, because we get nervous and scared when we hear an ambulance, or we're concerned for our relatives who are suffering, these are sentimental reactions. Thank you. They're valuable. They are not the love that we read about in Matthew 5, nor the love that is the riches that distinguishes Christians from others. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. And Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. There are three directions of love in this verse. There is love from the spiritual leaders, Paul includes himself in this group, the spiritual leaders to the flock. That love is an example love, or it ought to be. Then there's the love that the brethren have for each other. And then there's the love that the brethren have for those that are without. But please notice in verse 12, that love is not static, that God intends love to be a growing experience in us. What does it say? And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love. That is, if you have this much love for your brethren today, you should have this much love for them tomorrow. Your love for them should be growing. But what or how does Jesus characterize our day? It's that our love is diminishing. What should our love be doing? Growing, What does it do instead? It diminishes, but if it's diminishing, we are in danger, for it's those whose love endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. Why in this passage is it that we should have a love that is growing? Look at verse 13. To the end, or to this result, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, when... At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The end result is that when Jesus comes back, that we want to be established, we want to be not shaken, we want to be before him in, in unblameable, to have an unblameable holy experience. If that is the goal we desire, what is the means to that end in this passage? It is a growing love. It is a love that is larger today than it was before. Listen, there are some things that we say that militate against a growing love. I mean, when you say something like, I love him, but I do not like him. Maybe in some ways this is technically true. But that statement rather reduces your affection for him than increases it. 
that way of thinking about people, thinking ill about them, is a diminishing of our of that very characteristic that ought to be growing in this period of earth's history. I want to tell you some things that you can read more about, or if you go to Audioverse, I think you have a little card that was on your seat for Audioverse. If you go there, you can find sermons that expand on this a great deal. But in Numbers chapters 14 and 16, and in chapter 20, and in Exodus 32, and another place, Moses had an experience. He had it five times during his life. It was an experience where the people he was leading rose up against him or against his best helpers, Joshua and Caleb. The congregation rises up angry at God's faithful few. They want to sometimes to stone Moses or Joshua or Caleb. And when the church is so misaligned that the majority hate the people who are faithful and the faithful are in the far minority, when the church is in this kind of condition... God comes to Moses and gives him a very special offer. He says, Moses, I'm putting words, my own words into the story. Moses, it will separate from the congregation. I will start over with you and the faithful few. I will build on this foundation a new and mightier nation than this one, and I will destroy this one for their unfaithfulness. When this offer is made to Moses, never once does he volunteer to go forward with that option. What is it that is being tested in this time? Moses' love for the erring is being tested. It's not his love for Joshua and Caleb that is put to the test. It is his love for those who in every way deserve the judgments that are threatened against them. And when he reacts correctly, he rather intercedes for them than separates from them. It is so clear in the Bible that if he had separated, they would have been destroyed. It happened five times. What was God communicating on this trip from Egypt to Canaan in recording it five times in a very small book? It was to tell us that in our day, that there would be a test, a test of an enduring love for those who are and in every way deserving of judgments, that that test would, would come in the form many times of an offer to separate and start a new and better or holy group, but that there would be another option and preferable, and it would be to intercede for those who are erring. We are now in the middle of Operation Glow Ring. I rather wish it was 16,000 churches than 1,600 churches that were participating. Do you know that in Joel chapter 2, the outpouring of latter rain hinges on an experience of intercessory prayer? Let me summarize what we've said so far. In the last day, the test is going to be an enduring love. The last test will distinguish between those whose love was diminishing because of the wickedness around them or those whose love was growing 
growing even for those who did not warrant or deserve their love. And the test that comes to them differentiates between those who have the kind of love, the perfect love that Jesus had to send the rain on the unjust or those who love those that love them and salute their brethren only. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And we're looking at verse 19. Jesus communicates to Laodicea she is poor. She's poor in terms of, of love and faith. And what does he do for her? He exemplifies what love is like. Revelation 3, verse 19, As many as I love, what does it say? I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, repent. I am sure that there is a rebuking and that there is a correcting that is not in any way related to love. I'm sure of this. But there is a great deal of neglected correction and neglected rebuke that is very directly related to a lack of love. Why does Jesus come forward and rebuke Laodicea so plainly? What does he say? What is the reason? Because he cares for her so deeply. Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. This might be interesting to you, that the book that has love in it mentioned the most times in the King James, well, it's a tie between 1 John and Son of Solomon. But if you put those two books aside, you might be surprised that in the top five is the book of Deuteronomy. You know what you find in the book of Deuteronomy? The clearest and most repeated and most illustrated explanations of how love works practically and how it works in connection with the gospel and with the new heart and how God's love attracts us to love him. I'm telling you, if you want to find the gospel made very simple, it's in the book of Deuteronomy. And very many of the things said in the book of John and the book of First John that are the classic New Testament passages on love are simply Jesus and his apostle John quoting from the book of Deuteronomy and expanding on ideas that are there. Luke chapter 19, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 19, and we're looking at verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer, what does it say? Sin upon him. The next verse is also about love. I'll read it and come back to the first. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Does the Bible say anything about grudges among church members? It forbids them. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. I want to move off this point, but to say it very plainly, that the love that moves to intercession, we learn from the experience of Samuel, also moves to instruction. 
if I love my brethren enough to plead for them before the throne of God, I will love them enough to do something to take from their eyes that, that blindness that dooms them to destruction. So love in the Bible is combined with faith. Love in the Bible is combined with faith because how does faith work? It's by love. We learned in our last session that the reason that brotherly love comes before charity or love in the general, brotherly kindness, is because it's easier to love our brethren than it is to love those that are without. Didn't we see that in Matthew 5? These things are at the end or at the top of this Christian ladder. And why are they up there? Well, it's not like love isn't also at the beginning. What was the foundation of this ladder? It was faith. And how is it that faith works? Faith works by love. But in the Bible, what we've already learned this morning is that faith is not a static thing. It's not that you have love or you don't, or you have faith or you don't. Love is to be a growing thing. And if it's not growing, it is diminishing. Turn with your Bibles to Jude 21. Jude and verse 21. It's a very practical passage. Jude 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God... Listen, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. If the question is, how do you keep yourselves in the love of God, what is the answer in the passage? It's by meditative time spent on the mercy of God. This thought is so fundamental and so ill understood, I I feel okay to say it again. It's this thought that truth does not affect you except for when it has your attention. That you know that Jesus died for your sins. When is it that that fact is changing you? It's when you're thinking about it. And when you're not thinking about it, it's having very little impact on your life. How do you keep yourselves in the love of God? It's by looking for the, or to the mercy of God. Other than faith, there is another word or set of words that is very often connected with love in the Bible. I mean, so connected, it's the word commandment. Those same books, 1 John, John, and Deuteronomy, they're full of love. You know what else they're full of? And often, they're in the very same spot. They all go together. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus, chapter 20. I find for myself in Exodus 20 the most succinct explanation of how the gospel works in the entire Bible. Exodus chapter 20, and we're looking at verse 6. It says, And showing mercy unto thousands of them, what does it say? 
that love me and keep my commandments. Let's just have a few quiz questions from this verse alone. Is it sufficient to keep God's commandments? Is that all we need to do? What else is required? It's to love Him. Is it sufficient to love God? Is that What else is required? It's to keep His commandments. If we love Him and keep His commandments, have we earned our way to heaven? How do you know? We need mercy. But if we get mercy, is it still required that we keep His commandments? Do you see how beautiful this little verse is? It's just very simple. and says the whole thing, that He shows mercy to those that love Him and keep His commandments. It's interesting to me that when the papacy attacked the Ten Commandments, it was not only the fourth that they attacked. In fact, they attacked the fourth by changing it, but what did they do with the second? They extracted it. In content, they removed more than half of the Ten Commandments in what they did to the second and fourth, I mean in terms of words and volume. What they took, what they left, the Roman Church left the bare do's and don'ts, minus a couple, they removed the informational content. When the Bible says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, it really isn't the do's and don'ts that does so much converting. What is it that does the conversion? You see in the law of God, the mercy of God, shown to those that love him and keep his commandments, in commandment 2, and you see in commandment 4 the power of God that's able to remake and to renew and to do what needs to be done so that we can have an experience with God. Turn us in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and we're looking at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Do we know something now about how to continue in his love? How do we do it? By looking to his mercy. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Do we have a second answer now to the question, how do we abide in his love? We keep his commandments. Now this is the strangest deception that Satan has foisted on us. It's a dichotomy between the love of God and his commandments. When God's intention was that the commandments would explain what in the world it means to love someone and what it means to love God. I mean the commandments are an illustrated description of how to love. How do you love God? You put Him first. You don't bow down to anyone else. You give proper reverence to His name and to His character. And you honor His authority as Creator. He has a right to do what He will with what He makes. Did He make the weak? Does He have a right to do what He wants with the weak? The authority 
for the Sabbath is the fact that he made it. This is such a simple idea, but let me say it to you again. The man who makes something is the only one who can tell you what it's for. If I were to make a tool, if you were to make a tool, if you were to make a screwdriver, and I decided to use it for a hammer, I do this sometimes. I use screwdrivers for hammers when I can't find my hammer. Yet, is a screwdriver made to be a hammer? The man who made the screwdriver made it for a purpose, and the purpose he made it for is what it is for, no matter how I might choose to use it. That is, there is a relation between creation and purpose, and the only one who can define purpose is the one who creates. So, what is the purpose of having seven days in a week? Who can answer this question? It's the man, the one, who made the week. The fourth commandment is enforced by God's right as creator to say the purpose of something that he made. It teaches us that he has a right to say the purpose he has for us. That is, we learn by the fact that God can set aside a day as holy because he made it, that he can set aside me for whatever purpose he chooses. And how silly we are when we think that we can set aside ourselves for whichever occupation we choose. I feel like now giving a lecture on call portering. <laughs> but I'm not going to. Except to tell you that I know that many people that God called to that ministry aren't doing it. They aren't doing it because they don't understand that God has a right, if he makes a man, to use him for whatever purpose he chooses, and they rather would use themselves for some other purpose. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians is a very interesting book for Seventh-day Adventists that live in our age. I say that because at the very end of the book of Colossians, we're not looking there, but I guess you're welcome to. Paul says that be sure that you read this letter also to the Laodiceans. And that whatever letter was sent to the Laodiceans, be sure you read that in Colossae. So that if I were to ask you what New Testament city was similar in needs and characteristics and problems to Laodicea, you would say it was this, the one that received this book. And why was it that God chose Laodicea to be a symbol of the end of time? It's because Laodicea, the city in Asia Minor, had problems and issues similar to the church as a whole in our day. If I put those two facts together, what do I learn about Colossae? It had problems and issues similar in character to those that exist in the last generation. Colossians chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 1. For I would, or I wish that you understood, what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. There are three categories of persons in verse 1. There are the people of Colossae, the people of Laodicea, and us. I mean, the category of men who believed Paul knew about Paul, but had never heard him speak personally. Have we heard him speak personally? We haven't seen his face in the flesh. Apparently, these two cities 
And we as a body often had some similar misunderstandings of what he was trying to communicate. And this caused him problems, and he, he labored with God in his prayers over these issues. Verse 2. What was he praying for? That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in, what does it say? What was one of the problems in Colossae? It was that they weren't knit together. I mean, maybe they had some love of some type, the sentimentalism and the affection for, for those that loved them, but as a whole, they weren't a fabric, and yet that's what Paul wanted for them. Who else did he want that for? Those in Laodicea and our generation. That their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, listen, and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God. What was something that Colossae was lacking? They didn't really understand enough to acknowledge the reality of the mystery of God. In a way, I'm glad they didn't, because that's why Paul wrote to them about it and explained it. You remember chapter 1, verse 27? We learned the mystery of God. What does it say about it there? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me repeat what I've said, because I think I might have confused us. Colossae had two problems. They needed to be knit together in love. That was one problem. Their other problem was that they didn't understand really enough to acknowledge the reality that God could live inside of them. Is that similar to the issues we have today? I think it's exactly the issues we have today. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 15. This is our last passage, then we'll do a review. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're looking at verse 15. Paul said, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. If Paul was loving them more abundantly sentimentally, do you think they would have loved him back sentimentally more abundantly? When you give people flowers, they like you. When you love people sentimentally, which is a good thing to do, they respond in kind. But what kind of love was it that Paul showed that the more abundantly he showed it, the less he got it in return? You know, it was the kind of love that Jesus shows in Revelation chapter 3. We haven't looked at it, but two chapters after that abounding love in 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul says that you ought to know those who labor among you in word and doctrine and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. But pray tell, what kind of work do they have to do? You know, we're not very inclined to love them at all when they do their work. And we're inclined to heap them to us in great numbers when they don't do their work very well. Let me summarize what we've looked at this morning. Love is a heavenly plant. It needs to be cultivated. Faith is a heavenly plant that requires cultivation. There are weeds related to these things that require no cultivation at all. 
I mean unbelief and sentimentalism and opinionatedism, which is related to faith but can sometimes pass for it. Those things grow by themselves, but love and faith must be cultivated. They are the gold of religious experience. Laodicea says, I am rich, but in reality she is poor in these very qualities. She thinks she has faith and love because she has the right opinions, because she is sentimentally inclined to care for hurting people. But it really isn't that she has the kind of love that she needs, the kind of love that goes after, for example, her next-door neighbors and those that have done her wrong. Abounding iniquity causes a reduction in love, but not for everyone. It's in general that it causes a reduction in love. How does it do it? Either you can join with those who are abounding in their iniquity, and your love grows cold by association, or you can separate your affections from them and think to form a separate party, and the very, that very idea also causes your affection for them to decrease, your care for them to diminish. What is an option between? It's what Moses did. It's to pray earnestly for them. To intercede for them is what God is looking for us to do in passing the final test. When we intercede, then he pours on us his latter rain. The latter rain is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is love, so that when we demonstrate the type of practical love that the Bible exemplifies, the end result is a great filling of love. And what is the result or the end goal in an abounding love in our experience? It's that we will be blameless at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would take the words of your Holy Bible, that you would use them as a power in the lives of those that are here, that you would find a way to create in us that love, that very type of love that distinguishes Christians from others. I claim the promise and your command that we ought to love and to obey you that you can make it so. And that promise in the law that you will show mercy to those that meet those simple conditions. I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.